Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. The ACA is the peak body representing chiropractors in Australia. Hosted by Dr. Anthony Coxon, these podcasts explore the science, art, philosophy, and politics of chiropractic, as well as reviewing the latest research and discussing how chiropractors can strive for excellence in practice. Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. I'm your podcast host, Anthony Coxon. Headaches are the third most common reason that people see chiropractors. And of course, headaches are not just limited to adults. When working with children, it's important to understand the key features of the different types of headaches. So you're best placed to make an accurate diagnosis and to prescribe an appropriate management plan. Now, today I'm joined by a genuine expert in the field of paediatric headaches in Dr. Sue Weber. Sue did a great presentation on this topic at the Connecting Kids Symposium in March this year. Now, we won't have the opportunity to go to quite the depth that Sue covered in the symposium, but we will be doing what I expect will be a very good synopsis. I would highly recommend that you look at three of Sue's recent publications, all of uh, which are in the Journal of Clinical Chiropractic Pediatrics, and all of which come in the year 2021. And of course, the uh, JCCP is a uh, online free journal, so easy to get the access to those articles. Uh, we'll make these articles available in links in the podcast that goes out to all ACA me members. So the articles are Headaches in Children Part 1, The Changing Phenotypes in Migraine Headache in Infants, Children and Adolescents, Headaches in Children Part 2, the changing phenotypes of headaches in children, and three, chiropractic history and examination forms for the infant preschool and school age children. Now, if you listen to today's podcast and read those three articles, you'll get a very good grasp on this topic indeed. Now to our speaker, Dr. Sue Weber graduated valedictorian from the Western States Chiropractic College, now known as UWS, in Portland, Oregon in 1988. She is a family practitioner with over 30 years of clinical experience, specializing in the treatment of infants, children, and the pregnant patient. Sue completed the diplomat and masters in chiropractic pediatrics at AECC Bournemouth University in 2008. She's on the faculty of the pediatric division of the Royal College of Chiropractors. She's the chairperson of the Pediatric Special Interest Group in the EAC, which is the academic arm of the European Chiropractic Union, working to raise the standard of education for practitioners treating pediatric patients. From her extensive education and clinical experience, she composed a comprehensive education in pediatrics for, uh, for the pregnant patient. Besides clinical practice, Sue has published her research and also lectures internationally for postgraduate for the postgraduate community. Sue was awarded the Chiropractor of the Year in 2015 for promoting the profession by her work in developing an education in pediatrics and formulating guidelines for the pediatric patient. As I said, very well accomplished and well suited for our conversation today. Hi, Sue. Welcome to the ACA podcast. Thank you, Anthony. Thanks for having me. So we're talking about children and headaches. Um, what are some of the common headaches that children experience and how are they typically managed? 
Well, probably um, in children, what we can understand, and we're looking at you know all age groups here, um, tension type headache, migraine headache, cervicogenic headache um, are the most common types of headaches that kids will present with. And, and management, well, it depends on who they see. Most of the younger children, I say the majority of young children, I don't know that people understand that they're having headaches because headache doesn't always present with a headache, if I could say that. Um, medically, I think um, ibuprofen, uh, paracetamol, they're commonly prescribed. Um, for older children, it's not uncommon to prescribe for the migraine headache, different types of triptans, but those medications have significant side effects and a lot of the kids don't do well with them. Yeah. The Italian guidelines recommend um, manual therapy and there's a lot of evidence looking at vitamin D and magnesium as important um, targets for treating headaches is the deficiency in those are actually directly related to headaches. So there's nutraceuticals, there's, and again, that depends on who you see and what they recommend. Obviously there's lots of uh, options there. And like you said, a, a medical approach will be quite different, obviously to the chiropractic one, which we'll get into in a little uh, while. Just thinking about the, the typical child who gets headaches, is there, are they often sickly children? Do they have lots of comorbidities or these are often, healthy kids who just happen to get headaches as well? Well, it actually depends on the type of headache. And in the younger children, migraine headaches are more common. Uh, this is a type of headache that has a genetic predisposition. Um, and these children may not actually show up first or <clears throat> experience headache symptoms, but children with migraine headache are at home sick with other types of illnesses much more common than their peers. Um, so they are more sickly. The, um, there's a high degree of comorbidity as well with headaches and we see asthma, uh, frequent ear infections, uh, hay fever, those types of things, as well as psychological types of problems like depression, anxiety, ADHD. And once you move into adolescence, you see more biomechanical problems like neck pain, shoulder pain, and back pain. And in all age groups, we see sleep disorders. Right. So there are significant comorbidities. And in the younger children, migraine headache is, I would say, more common. So you've used a lot of the terms, of course, that um, you know most people will be familiar with and these are, are often the types of headaches that the international classification of headache disorders use the migraine the tension headache cervicogenic and so on are there key differences i mean children obviously aren't just little adults what are the key differences between headaches in kids and, and headaches in adults well anthony you measure the international classification of headache disorders and in 2013 they made their latest version the beta version and in that, it's the first time they've made any kinds of um, qualifications for the pediatric patient. Um, and there's other groups, there's the International Headache Society, and there's other groups of specialists dealing with uh, headaches that actually have been quite critical of um, the international classification of headache disorders, how they um, make their changes for the pediatric patient, because a lot of the particularly younger children don't fit into the categories because I would say the, the 
if we look at the international classification for headache disorders in 2013, they reduced the number of hours you needed to have a headache to fall into the classification of headaches. Um, so they, in order say to have the migraine headache, it, you had to have it for four hours and they reduced that to two hours. But the younger children have it significantly less time than that. So they're not getting categorized as headaches. And the problem with that is if you have a child that's <clears throat> having trouble and you can't give them, they don't fit into a classification, particularly with headaches, they commonly get a psychiatric diagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, but if we look at the differences in headaches uh, between adults and children, uh, it's primarily the duration of headache, um, where the headache is experienced is different, and the symptomatology is also different. So we see you know, quite a few differences in that. And I'd say it's primarily the child under six years of age that's difficult not only to evaluate, but to categorize. You know, mm. they're not, there's skills and communication can be an obstacle to understanding what's going on with them. And also the headaches can be very indistinct and, you know, difficult, even understanding what they're dealing with, it can be difficult to diagnose them. And one of the key differences is the headache criteria is based on symptomatology and not physical exam criteria. So that makes diagnosing cervicogenic headache very difficult. Yes. So and actually, I'm sorry, you did ask me management. And of yeah. course, I didn't mention spinal manipulative therapy for children or some kind yeah. of musculoskeletal type of treatment would be critical for those that have spinal dysfunction. Of course. Um, so we're primary care contact practitioners. Um, one of the first things we need to know is, is the person young child in front of us uh, meant to be in our office or somewhere else. So what are the key red flags to look out for in uh, children with headaches? Well, I would say that um, depending on the age group, um, the what you're looking for may differ, but you're so right. One of the most important things is we recognize children that shouldn't be in our office. And I mean, there's some types of, uh, headaches that can present with cerebellar dysfunction. And this would be, say, ataxia, nystagmus. Um, that would be an indication. Um, features of increased intracranial pressure. So this is particularly those um, that may be waking up with severe vomiting. Um, and of course, I don't think we're all looking in the eyes, looking for papilledema. And that's a, also a skill in the younger patient, but that would be an indication, um, new neurological deficits, say squinting, uh, focal seizures. I mean, sometimes during the history, you might notice, I've noticed sometimes kids that have absence seizures. Um, <clears throat> so recognizing signs or symptoms of seizures. And I think the primary one is that in particularly say, You'd, know, you'd be able to get this information from a school, at least from a school age child, is that all of a sudden I get a headache and it's the, you know, the worst headache I've ever had and it, um, it's progressing. Uh, so there's also night epilepsy, um, kids waking up, <clears throat> they're tired in the morning, they haven't been sleeping, they may be biting their tongue, uh, waking up due to a severe headache, and lastly, probably personality changes if there were significant differences in that. 
Okay. So I would uh, say those are the primary ones. Now, I want to move now and talk about the, uh, perhaps breaking it down even a little bit further. I know in um, your presentation uh, that you did to the Connecting Kids uh, Symposium early in the year that you talked about um, headaches in the different children age groups, uh, infants and toddlers versus primary school versus secondary or high school children. Can you tell us a little bit about what the key features are for headaches in the different age groups of children? Well, I would say in the the young children that are, there's not uncommon to experience something called episodic syndromes or periodic syndromes. And these may occur first before the child actually gets a headache. And I think that as you're dealing with, you know, say a school-age child, you can actually go back and look at this and say, oh, you know, you had infantile colic. There's Amy Gelfand, she's done a lot of research with this and said one of the subgroups of infantile colic can be a migraine headache, and she's providing a lot of evidence looking at that. But again, that's one of the subgroups. You can have uh, paroxysmal torticollis, which is less common, and that can start about the age of one. And there, a child would um, <clears throat> present with acute torticollis, and that could say be on the right side on one time. And at the same time, they wouldn't feel good. They'll have sort of vegetative symptoms of nausea, pallor, um, <clears throat> but they may present again with the torticollis on the other side. And this you need to differentiate from say gristle syndrome, which would occur um, an acute torticollis that occurs usually in an older child, say from five to seven years old, um, where they've had some kind of either upper respiratory tract infection or they've had um, or um, ear, nose and throat surgery where they could have an acute episode and it has to do with instability in the ligaments <clears throat> in the upper cervical spine, the lantodental ligament. And um, they are usually hypermobile and this is a strict contraindication to manipulation, but it can be treated with manual therapy um, as it's usually painful. Um, so do you have this acute paroxysmal torticollis say in a one, in about the age of one years old. And then you could have um, acute episodes of vertigo. Um, and this is in the, that's about say two years of old. And as I move up in the ages, I might start to get more abdominal types of symptoms. And the enteric nervous system is coupled um, so that we see um, cyclical vomiting uh, where I have episodes of vomiting. And this is still a, usually a younger child. And then as I move into school age, this goes over say, or it presents more so with um, acute abdominal pain, which has um, in some ways similar to the migraine in that it's a severe abdominal pain. I'm unable to participate in activities. Um, it lasts about the same amount of time. So these kind of symptoms can present before the child actually develops headaches. And then mm. towards later pre-adolescence, they start to develop more headaches. And by adolescence, as the brain is matured, then we start to see more of the typical migraine symptoms. So that's a kind of classic progression yeah. of how migraines can um, present. Um, and we once we move into adolescence, we start to see also um, pre-adolescence tension type headaches. And now with children, they can change, which is one of the reasons why, you know, some authors are looking at, is this one type of headache that has, you know, different ends of a spectrum, or is it actually two separate types of headaches, which we do see um, 
in the International Classification of Headache Disorders describes them as different types of headaches. And then of course, if I have a, a cervicogenic headache, I think it's very interesting because a lot of the kids that I treat have a significant component of spinal dysfunction and they've maybe been classified as migraine headaches. Their life is you know, significantly um, affected by this and the whole family's affected. And then you go and you say, well, has there been any trauma? No, there's not been any trauma. And I, you know, you palpate the spine and you're like, there's been trauma here. This is obviously, there's yeah. obviously been a problem here. And then, you know, one patient was like, oh my God, yeah, he had a fractured skull as a one-year-old. And I was, um, and after treatment, he hasn't had, not that this is going to happen with everybody, but it's an example of someone whose life is completely, you know, disabled by this, you know, daily headache. And then he's, you know, been headache free for a long period of time. So we can't underestimate the effect of, you know, spinal dysfunction and how it affects the presentation um, of the headache symptoms. So, so let's talk a little bit about um, spinal manipulative therapy or adjusting of the spine for something mm -hmm. like migraine. So okay. when, when, that, when, when a chiropractor is working with a child and doing something like what you've just described, what's actually happening um, in, in, in the nervous system and how is it that, the, um, that an imbalance in the neck, for example, can trigger a migraine and how does that differ, say, from a tension headache? Well... The trigeminal vascular system is um, the, pain sense, the pain system in the head. And in the migraine headache and the tension type headache, you know, that this system is triggered, there's like an inflammatory cascade. Um, <clears throat> this is how the headache develops. And this is the primary headache. The problem is in the head as opposed to a tumor. I mean, this is the pain sensitive structures in the head are irritated. And if I, with the spinal dysfunction, you have no susceptive information that is playing into this and creating a change in the threshold for irritation in the system. So we see that um, when I have uh, <clears throat> a spinal dysfunction, you have ascending afferent information playing into this trigeminal vascular or system, which is contributing to the headache and maybe make it less resistant to treatment. Um, and then we have other factors that can as well play into this that are secondary like obesity, puts the body in a pro-inflammatory state, which also contributes to this um, perpetuation of a headache. We also know now that children that are experiencing abuse, and this can be bullying in school or not feeling, you know, having not just physical abuse, but just emotional abuse. And that also puts the body in, a, in an inflammatory state and plays into this perpetuating this trigeminal vascular inflammatory cascade. Mm. And this is also involved um, we see neurotransmitters are involved. Why depression, anxiety, and headache? We see a link with that as well. And where is the, the evidence uh, for uh, this sort of care that the chiropractors are doing and we're doing all the time? Where, where, where's the levels of evidence for that now for something like migraine headache? 
Well, I know the, the recent study done by Ling through in Denmark um, that's been recently published, they looked at spinal manipulation for headaches in children and actually they didn't specify the headache. They just looked at using spinal manipulation across, across the board for school-aged kids and saw what happens to children with headaches. Yeah. Um, Chabi, on the other hand, has done more work looking and saying, well, um, actually we see an improvement in um, people. Now this is not children, this is adults. Um, they have less, they, the, the need for medication is less. They have less intensive headaches. Uh, they're less frequent. So one, they're, this is for the migraine headaches. So we, and what we do see is that if we're able to get in early and avoid this central sensitization of the nervous system, you know, experiences pain, um, we're able to sort of break that uh, perpetuation of chronic pain. So the goal is to get in early and to uh, work with the triggering factors. One big one is spinal dysfunction, if that's actually present, um, and to treat that. And, you, and obviously that's key. You mentioned before about the, some of the Italian recommendations for nutraceuticals and so forth. Um, can you just elaborate a little bit more on that and particularly how that applies to migraine headaches in children? Well, what they're looking at in the, in the headache population and including children, we're seeing there's, the, there's a very high prevalence of vitamin D deficiency in that population. We also know that with obesity, we have a higher, that also creates the situation where I'm more likely to have vitamin D deficiency. Mm. And so <clears throat> that's involved in um, how your body interprets pain. And we also know that people with chronic pain have, you know, once I have vitamin D deficiency, I'm more likely to have chronic pain syndrome. So it's used to treat pain syndromes, including headaches, and magnesium is an important cofactor, which is involved in how I take up D vitamin. And magnesium itself changes the threshold for when I have muscle contraction. So we see that that's involved with reducing, say, spasming in the musculature. Um, and just thinking on that, just thinking from a practical sense, do you, if you have a patient who uh, presents with migraine, do you um, order tests to, to look at magnesium or vitamin D levels, or, or is it safe enough to um, make an assumption that it's probably there and a trial of um, nutraceuticals is you know, more, more important than actually a, a test to look at levels? Well, I'm living in, and working in Sweden where we have, um, we're, uh, we're able to produce D vitamin two months of the year. Yeah. And people in the other Nordic countries are recommended to take a supplement during the months of the year that we're unable to produce vitamin D, where Sweden, they don't have that recommendation, except for children up to two years of age. Right. So during the winter months, I recommend they either take a multivitamin or some kind of um, lower levels, you know, safe levels of D vitamin and um, magnesium. If there's a question, there's tests available that people can order themselves or get through the doctor, uh, the medical, you know, their, their primary, other primary caregiver. Um, 
So I'm comfortable in December telling people to take lower levels of um, vitamins to address this. Yeah. Uh, and then depending on the situation um, and depending on, you know, where people are and what their situation is, particularly just, say with the child that's overweight, um, I don't have trouble recommending that. And then yeah. certain patients I'll ask to get testing. So how important, I mean, obviously it's uh, a part of a diagnosis should have a classification of what type of headache is there, or, or at least be making a, an effort to try and classify that. Um, we've talked about sort of migraine headaches. I want to talk about some of the others and, and um, one in particular, a new daily persistent headache. Can you tell um, our listeners what that is and, and how you might go about managing something like that? Um, in the literature, they actually can call both new daily persistent headache and new persistent daily headache. So you can find different, um, they refer to it, unfortunately, in two different ways there. Um, this is also um, relatively new, although I'm wondering if it's not going to become much more prevalent after COVID. Um, it is a primary headache disorder, and it not uncommonly follows some kind of infection or trauma where I've not had a headache before and following, you know, this event, now I have, you know, constant headaches. Mm. We see it commonly in adolescents, not so commonly in younger children, although that may change following COVID. It's considered, you know, significantly under-recognized and under-diagnosed. Um, it's classified once you've had it more than three months. Um, and again, as a post-COVID syndrome, um, it's possibility we may see more of it. It's difficult to diagnose as well, except for the concept that, you know, I had this significant infection and now I have constant headaches and I've had them for more than three months and I haven't had them before. Mm. Um, it's thought to resolve. It can last for quite a while. Most headaches resolve after 24 months, but it can be say even a, like say from a year to two years. Phenotypically, it's similar to migraine headaches, um, and that so has some characteristics of tension-type headache. So I think it's tricky to diagnose, but if you look at how it's evolved, that's um, helpful. Hmm. And of course, you know, if you're looking at this, you know, all the sudden headache, you'd want to make sure that you don't have some other kind of pathology. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so what would be the, some of the key features that might distinguish that, say, from you mentioned about uh, uh, tension type headache? What are some of the key differences between the two? Um, I think tension type headache, there is, you know, more recently we've recognized this as having a genetic component. Um, it's not as severe. It's more of a mild to moderate headache. Um, you have more of, with tension type headache, you have more of a psychological profile in that, like I'm mm. more susceptible to stress. I, you know, and this evolves over a period of time as opposed to sudden onset, Yeah. It, you know, and then I have this, you know, bad headache, constant headache and tension type headache is not a constant type of headache. It's, it comes and goes, it's associated more commonly with when I'm having testing at school and I have more severe headache and then I have a weekend, I have time off and I feel better. Um, so it, it has a quite a different profile actually. Yeah. 
Um, now, of course, you mentioned at the start uh, when we talked about the common um, ways that people manage headaches and pharmaceuticals, clearly probably being the most common of all, um, but this has a double-edged sword, sword, not only in terms of potential side effects, but it can be a trigger for headache as well. So tell us when do you, uh, or how do you go about uh, making a diagnosis of a headache that might be triggered from actual medication? And is that something that you would need the assistance of a, a general practitioner or another uh, provider in terms of helping with the management or the diagnosis there? Well, and I actually, this is more common um, in the group of kids that have tension type headaches. It's not as severe as a migraine headache. Generally, a migraine headache is a very severe headache as well as the new persistent daily headache. Um, but kids that start having tension type headaches, it's very common. And so we see that they're taking um, medication more often. And this usually starts in adolescence. I did a study looking at this and there was a real clear distinction between pre-adolescence and adolescence that that's when kids started using medication. Um, and once I start to use uh, medication uh, often, and so what is often, because these have changed fairly recently, like how often is often. Um, if I'm taking uh, medication 10 to 15 times a month for more than three months. Um, kids may start to develop a headache and actually adults as well. Um, that is uh, either a worsening of the type of headache they've had, or they may present with a new type of headache. Mm. So the goal is um, to not use headache more than 15 times a month. Um, try to actually recommend, I think education is important for all these, um, both the children and their parents to understand once I start to use medication more than two to three times a week, I'm in the risk zone for this type of headache. Um, and then work with them to find strategies using, you know, exercises, ergonomics and other things to help them, you know, get a hold of this headache. And it's actually not it's fairly common between, it's estimated that between 20 to 50% of kids will develop an overuse headache. Wow. Is there particular medications that uh, they're more prone to be triggers, actual triggers for headaches? Not, not as far as the literature has shown any of the headache medications. And of course, uh, I'm thinking, but this is an adult patient. I'm thinking of someone I know who uses a medication that has, um, I was going to say caffeine in it, but uh, I haven't seen any literature that's been specific to the type of medication. Right. Yeah. It's interesting you talk about caffeine and I'm not, I won't suggest that I'm au fait with the, the literature on this, but certainly from practical experience, that's certainly one that can cause and for the very short term um, help a headache all, all at once. So I suppose that I would imagine that the, um, uh, the mechanism at play there might be similar to the medication. Right. Mm -hmm. Um. Another really common thing, and in, uh, in, and probably there's so much more awareness around this these days uh, in the sporting world is um, concussion or mild uh, brain injury, traumatic brain injury. Um, tell us about what are the key things are to look for there. Well, this is an area that I have um, really been interested in for about gosh, 15 years now, trying to you know educate parents and children, you know, that are involved in sports, the importance of, you know, respecting head injuries and not going back into play and trying to figure out how, you know, internationally, you know, 
we could work to get people working with kids to understand it. So, you know, we make the playing field more even. A lot of the kids that suffer from this are kids that feel like they're the one on the team that makes a difference and they don't want to stop playing once they've got a head injury. And um, not uncommonly, they stay, you know, through the years I've seen, they stay in the game. Even, you know, some people, their parents are coaches and they're just, you know, we got to win and you're going back in and the kids want to go back in. And uh, I think we're starting to see the implications of that in the college athletes um, that have been playing professionally that have had, you know, serious, you know, brain trauma and the consequences of that, not in the least of which is suicide. Mm. Um, But a mild concussion, traumatic brain injury, um, there's obviously an incident and they have a head, a head injury, um, And I think you have to respect also the fact that kids that have and people that are hypermobile will suffer um, more severely because there's so much more excursion with a hit. Yeah. Um, So they may originally be kind of dizzy. You don't have to lose consciousness, um, sort of, uh, you know, stunned. Um, And then it can go over into having headaches, um, being fatigued, um, being dizzy, very commonly difficulty cognitively functioning. Um, And then this can develop into chronic symptoms. Uh, Before, not too long ago, you know, it was strict cognitive and physical rest that was the, you know, recipe. And I think more recently they're looking and saying, you know, some kind of active Um, activity is important Mm. not hard you know not provoking symptoms but certainly being uh, not being completely still one of the big things as well and it's one of the problems with recovering are sleep disturbances and the kids are often very frustrated I mean you imagine someone who's so into sports and then you take the we kind of take them out and say, listen, you need to rest. It's the kids that, you know, very commonly are, you know, 150% all in. Um, they may, you know, and they, it affects their concentration at school. So they're having difficulty there. So management of this <clears throat> is important on all levels, you know, the, at school, at home, their coaches. Um, if we look at treatment as far as cervical spine dysfunction, it can be difficult and, and actually not recommended in the very beginning where any kind of, you know, fast head movement is a problem for them, yeah. but certainly it needs to be evaluated when things calm down. <clears throat> and this is not uncommonly something that can progress into a migraine headache. So we could see that this could be to become the new persistent daily headache or a migraine headache. So Again, there you'd be looking at saying, well, what's actually going on? Does it has the symptoms? Migraine, and I don't think I mentioned this, which is important. One of the things that really is um, significant to the migraine headache are the symptoms of nausea, photophobia, phonophobia, um, <clears throat> and um, not uncommonly vomiting. So if you start to look at the headaches and you don't have really those types of symptoms, it's less likely that it's a migraine headache. And that can be the distinguishing characteristics for the migraine headache. I want to talk a little bit about uh, just assessment and examination, and maybe we'll use the, um, you know, the child who's had a knock to the head um, a week mm-hmm. ago, and they're still 
not feeling quite themselves and the parents are, um, are concerned, they're bringing them to see you. What are the, some, to take us through your, your typical examination and what particularly you're looking for? Well, if I, um, I think that well, one of the things we've understood with the type of <clears throat> concussion headache is how a visual exam will give us clues to that. And I'm actually the most sensitive part of the examination would be looking at accommodation. Yeah. And that is usually, that's my most significant indicator on the exam if they're still dealing with a concussion. The problem with that is if I haven't seen them before, I don't really know what their accommodation is like, but that should function normally <clears throat> and is my most important finding for the examination. I'll be looking also at, is, are the eyes tracking? Are they following um, what I'm expecting with that type of uh, eye exam, looking at cranial nerve function? Um, and so my cranial exam is going to give me a lot of clues to um, how they're doing on that level, but particularly the eye examination. Then we're also looking at, you know, upper cervical um, neuro examination just to make sure they're fine there. I mean, a concussion also means I had a cervical injury yeah. and we need to understand, you know, what the effects of that are. But what we want to look also as well as blood pressure that kind of thing and see what other medications are taking. Yeah. You know, I, we mentioned as well, and I actually, in the medication list, kids that are on ADHD medication, that can be a cause of headache. Yeah. You mentioned about um, visual accommodation and uh, eye tracking. Do you use that just as a, this is where you're at and I'm going to do an intervention and we're going to come back um, and monitor that those changes over time? Or does that actually, do you use that actually to direct what side of the spine you might adjust and think of it in terms of a hemisphericity type of model at all? No, I would say that I understand that they're having, <clears throat> well, I used eye tracking actually on all kids. Um, so not just a concussion. I would, I don't use what side of the spine I should adjust based on findings like that. I use that based on palpitation findings, what is not actually functioning here. But I know there, if you look at the work of Melillo and um, different uh, authors looking in more neurologic, like a neurological key into treatment, I know that that is uh, an yeah. important part of how they work. Yeah, yeah. And so what are some of the key, uh, I guess, non-adjustive type of things that you might be looking to do with and now let's sort of maybe expand it out of not just the concussion one, but the, the, the migraine or, or the more severe type of headaches. What are some of the advice you would give them as far as diet or exercise, those sorts of things? Well, you mean like that kids with headaches, they do well being on a, like having a, a schedule that's consistent. So going to bed at the same time, eating yeah. at the same time, they have a healthy life, healthy, healthy lifestyle where they're, you know, moving every day. Um, screen time, we haven't mentioned that's also associated with, you know, certain types of, you know, problems now with um, vision and different types of headaches. So this will be important to understand the different factors that are not only affecting them, but say, helping parents understand what are no, what is recommended as far as how much screen time kids is healthy for children and um, how much sleep is healthy for children. And um, so I think that part of is helping parents make good, you know, 
guide their children and feel empowered with that. Um, so a regular schedule um, and a healthier lifestyle is what you're looking for with kids with headaches. Very good. Um, now, you've obviously published a fair bit and you were talking, we were talking just before we started recording this about some of your uh, upcoming publications. Do you want to maybe share some of that with uh, or let our listeners know what it is that you've been working on? Um, well, I published a paper looking specifically at <clears throat> how migraine headache evolves from infancy to adolescence to get a better understanding of that in detail. And then I looked specifically, the other paper that I published recently was about differentiating migraine headache, tension type headache, and cervicogenic headache. And now I've gone in and said, okay, well, let's look at a good, um, a paper looking at, and this will be published soon in the Journal of Clinical um, Chiropractic Pediatrics, um, looking at a questionnaire, an examination, and a history form for children with headaches. This is geared for the school-aged child and the adolescent. So giving you um, an outline of what's appropriate to understand as you evaluate children with headaches. So that should be coming out soon. I think that'd be great resources. And for our listeners listening to this podcast, those uh, links will be provided um, along with the podcast that are emailed out to our members. Uh, Sue, thank you so much uh, for your time today. I think um, I really appreciate it. I know you've traveled from Sweden to the, the US. It's uh, early morning over there and later in the evening uh, here, but uh, and you've been really wonderful. And I think you've you've also got a great um, uh, knowledge base there that you're happy to share with the world. And I really appreciate you making time to be on the ACA podcast today. Thanks, Anthony. Have a really nice evening. That's a pleasure. And thank you again. Uh, well, that's it for me. Thanks for listening. I hope this podcast has been helpful in your quest for excellence and look forward to chatting with you again on our next ACA podcast. <laughs>